welcome to the Royal Automobile Club on Pall Mall for the latest talk show in association with motorsport. Uh, we're going to talk about bikes, um, and so today we've got Matt Oxley with me, and also Jonathan Ray. So welcome. Good afternoon. And you've quite a good season you're in the middle of right now. It's been incredible. Probably more recently, my, my biggest win rate to, to date, and um, you know, to cap it off last weekend with a championship win, it's been incredible. You know, two rounds before the end of the season. I'm literally on cloud nine. I can't really believe it's happening, to be honest. So you said 2017 was your happiest year. Has that now been replaced? Certainly 2017 was the best feeling I had with a motorcycle. You know, I talked openly with my, um, my team manager about that bike and, um, and my crew chief and whatnot. But this season, the, the technical regs just took a little, you know, we, our bike performance got suppressed a little bit. But we changed the engine character quite a lot, and it actually suited me. You know, I felt like I could go back and ride more like I did in 2015 when I first arrived at Kawasaki to a completely polished package. And um, I would go as far as say, you know, the 2018 bike's the best we've had. What, what way is the engine, just quickly, what, what way is the engine character different? So, for example, uh, 2017, our rev limit would have been into yeah. the 15,000s. This year we had. Uh, our rev limit got set at 14,100. Yeah. The problem was our bike made power beyond 14,100. So when I was changing gear in the off season, I would be, if I didn't change gear right on the perfect moment, I would be straight into the screen. Mm. So we had to take all that power we had and move it, you know, further down the, the rev range. The, but the problem with that, bikes can become unrideable. Mm. So I didn't want a revy engine, I wanted a real torque engine, you know, power that I could feel in my hand and I could use and, you know, within a couple of winter tests and some electronic tweaks, um, you know, a mid-season test in Bruno where we'd, we changed the complete geometry of the bike to make it more lazy and more stable and I think we find ourselves, you know, the best version of the ZX-10R. So since then you've won eight in a row and nine of the last ten, so then that was Bruno and in there you also broke Fogarty's record. So was that the building up to that point of that season? And then since then it's clicked and gone? I felt like it clicked before that point. We went to, I think it was Donington. And after Donington, we went straight to a test in Czech Republic. You know, all the, most of the teams were there. And we pretty much, um, you know, we just changed the balance of the bike and made it much more stable. And the inputs of me as a rider when it was more stable was I could be more aggressive with the bike and it would make less reaction. And we went to Imola where you know, Chaz beat us flat out last year and we doubled up there, uh, moved on to Donington. I mean, I seen Donington of what, what should have been. I mean, I competed with Vandermark for the race win until last five laps and I fell apart like a cheap suit. You know, I got arm pump and, and um, went backwards. Then we went to Bruno and um, I won and race two, Tom and I came together and I went down. So I feel like it clicked well before then and, and we were able to carry that momentum right from, from Imola. Yep. And Bruno, your book, which is out this week, I believe, um, starts at Bruno. It's a really vivid kind of start and you can't help but get involved in the book. How easy was that to write? Because um, you're, you're on the grid of you, aren't you, as a reader? So. Yeah, I wanted to... Um, it was strange. You know, I've read so many sporting autobiographies, and when I was thinking to do mine, it's hard to, to capture the, the non-fan, the non-bike fan. 
or reader starting on day one, you know, not much happened in my you know, years one to five, I was a kid. So I thought together with um, you know, a great friend of mine, Steve Booth, who really helped me with the book, we went with impact in the first, we had to start it somewhere and we thought Bruno, you know, 60 wins, passing Foggy's record was a good place to start. And I thought about um, trying to describe all the feelings from being so nervous in the grid to you know, needing a P, needing like all the G-forces you go through, all the things I think about in my brain that tackle the circuit and going through the race talking about how the pit board was going, you know, and uh, it was fun going back to it, to be honest. And uh, I mean, I just, it was quite easy because I'd done that chapter as recently as a few weeks after the race. Right. So it's very easy to re reconnect with the emotions and what actually happened. How often do you go for a pee before a race? So many. Yeah. Honestly, back, give it's, us a it's rough idea. absolutely nuts. In the it's space, back and forth, isn't it? In the space <laughs> of, um, so I pee before I get changed, which is yeah. 10 minutes before pit lane opens, which is 20 minutes before the race. So half an hour before the race, I'll yeah. pee, get changed, have another little dribble, <laughs> go to the garage. I'll normally leave the garage and go out the back of the garage and have a, a pee. It's, it's not glamorous, right? But some, sometimes the toilets are so far away, you have a pee bottle. So I'll have my pee bottle with me the whole time and my assistant Kev will have, and then I get to the grid and sometimes, <laughs> not the best job in the world, I'll get to the grid and sometimes it's fine on the grid, but the last thing I want to think of on the grid is I need to pee. So if I do, I get straight off the grid because I don't want it to be a factor in my brain. So maybe you could say five, six yeah, times. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you can go yeah, through yeah. days, yeah. normal days, yeah. and not need to go to the toilet that often. But yeah. when your adrenaline's pumping, it's... In the good old days, people used to just wee up against the arm and stuff. Well, do you want me to tell you a, a really funny story? And it didn't make the book. It happened last season. Was we were in Imola, and it was just... I hadn't gone, and I was absolutely busting. And I, um, I started to go on my leathers. So much so, it, was, it dripped down, and there was like a very small puddle under my bike <laughs> and um, you know the three minute board you have to unplug your tire warmers and my chief mechanic Yuri spotted this and he gently like tapped my other chassis mechanic and was like like what's that thinking it was water or oil or something from the bike <laughs> Pearl Yuri like dip tested it you know <laughs> and he only told me it was the, it was actually Donington 2017 when I won the race and uh, he told me in part for me, he looked at me, he slapped me and he says, you peed in the grid, didn't you? I was like, yeah, sorry, mate. It was the first and only time. You get fined if you do it now in the Armco. Yeah, I think it's more because of, um, you know, a lot of Friendly us were viewing. pulled aside and I don't think the sponsors were very happy of you. <laughs> you know, going to the toilet up against their sponsor. I can completely understand as well, but what I keep asking, um, you know, inside the safety commission and things like that, and the organizers is like World Motocross, you come back to the warm-up area and there's port everywhere. And sometimes depending on where your, your start grid is, toilets are, can be like 200 meters away. And it's really hard to get to. You just need one of those kind of yeah portable peace wells that they have in festivals. Paris. Pa Paris and, yes, and I have one of them on pit lane, and everybody can go. Yeah. So like four or five like, people can have a wee at the same time on them. Yeah, Bushy's beer tent, you know, peas. You know, that's kind of um, would be a bit more easy.
that before that race at Bono, were you conscious of the record? Yeah, of course. I mean, my team had told me they prepared T-shirts, and then when I had fifty-nine wins, um, you know, at this stage in my career and how things are going, it was inevitable. It was going to happen at some point. So. I started talking about championship celebrations back in 2015. I had the worst race of my life to win that championship. It was fourth, the worst result of the season. And I really struggled and, and I put a lot of that down to talking about what we were gonna do if I won the championship and the distraction. So they told me, listen, if you get this done today, we're gonna be at turn 11, you know, the uphill left-hander at the bottom of the circuit, after the bottom of the circuit. And I said, right, I understood what they meant. So. It was in my brain, and but it only kind of came back into my brain once I'd got it done. Right. You know, I was conscious of it during the weekend, but um, during the race, I never even up until even crossing the line. I just it was too much. I got through the last corner and picked up this awesome wheelie, and it was like quite a decent start straight at Bruno, and rode that whole way to turn one. And when I set the front wheel down, I was like, I've like got sixty race wins. It was unbelievable. So um, yeah, it was pretty. Pretty cool. You're kind of um, obviously four titles. Uh, next year, you know, you're obviously going to go for a fifth. You're sort of becoming a bit like the sort of McDoon of World Superbike, aren't you? You know, you got the, the the best rider on probably the best bike. I think probably um, unbeatable for four seasons. And you know, Mick was unbeatable for five, wasn't he? I mean, uh, and he and he really liked to kind of destroy everybody, make everybody go home with their tail between their legs. And so they come up the next race thinking that they didn't have a chance and, and it worked pretty well. I mean, it, it, is that, do you, um, do you like to just put a biggest gap as you can on people or do you like to f battle no. or, or what? Depends, I mean, it completely depends and race strategy changes from race to race. I mean, some weekends I know my pace is good and I, I feel confident enough to take the race by the neck and go from the first lap. Some races I feel, really nervous and I want to let the race play out. Other races I'm happy to wait to the last five laps and show my hand. And um, before that was more, you know, when I first joined Kawasaki, I won so many races in 15 using that, you know, strategy, waiting to the last five laps of the race. But more recently, I've had the confidence in myself to, you know, go from the gun and, and make it happen. Them races are the toughest. You know, you think you win by four seconds or eight seconds or five seconds, but they're the toughest races because when you're in front and you're pulling 10th by 10th every lap, you know you can relax a little, two tenths a lap or whatever. You do the math and work it out and think, but then as soon as you start to relax, you start making mistakes. So the toughest races are actually some of the ones where you're you know, up the road by yourself. How do you, how do you um, approach the next? the end of the season, because the pressure's off, what do you do? The pressure's off, but racing is 99% in the brain. You know, if I rolled off the gas now, it's, it's a confidence game. I started getting beat flat out by my rivals. I would enter the off season in a, a low way. I want to go out and keep winning. Yeah. This part of me has my eyes set on, on trying to beat my you know, points record from last season, five, five six points in a season. Um, I mean, just I have no idea how the championship's going to be for next season, but there was some musings in, 
in some journalists writing about possibility of three races in a weekend, which would increase the, the races during a season. So whilst there's 26 races, if I can be the, well, I am the last guy to get the points record, but if I could increase that, it would be a nice way to stay focused to the end of the year. Yeah, you've got, I think, 14 wins, and no one else has more than two. So, like, Really? I think so, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's quite dominating performance all round, isn't it? So as Matt was saying, uh, like I wants uh, doing, that's kind of what you're doing though, isn't it? By winning, just decimating the rest of the I feel like position. this year I've been the strongest guy. Um, 17 also, probably 15 also, but 16, Chaz Davis won more races. He won, I think, 11 to my nine. Um, but we made less mistakes during the year. You know, when my when I had a bad day, it would be still on the podium, and um, and that was the difference. I guess uh, the big thing next year is the Ducati V4. Um, obviously, it'll be their first year. Do you, have you got any kind of idea whether that's going to be a threat or not? I guess you don't really I've know. No, you get the first race. Honestly, no idea. I know they they've released that concept last season, so all this year. With their test rider, uh, Michele Piero, they've been riding the bike. The only thing I know is what everyone else knows. They, Ducati published a, a story that it's already better than their Panigale, which means we got to face up. It's going to be very competitive. Yeah. Has Charles ridden it yet? Do you know? I have no idea. I don't think so. But so when were, you, when were you thinking about five titles? Does that only start now? When? Uh, yeah, I mean, now, yeah. I honestly focus year to year. But, you know, as a four-time world champion, I can't aim for anything less than trying to win next year. It's going to be tough. I mean, I feel like I'm riding better than ever. It's my, the feeling I have with the bike is incredible. You have to move forward. You have to improve. Because if I did the same race times as last year, even with the regulation, times are much, much faster this year. So you can't sit still. And uh, next year, we're going to have to find something. Luckily for me, we have a, you know, a great new bike also, bringing a new ZX10RR. With um, enough modifications, I feel like we can improve in our weak areas as well. The reader uh, called Kevin asks actually about the bikes and how they changed over the four years. Um, how different were the four championship bikes, he asks, that you rode for the years and through changes in regulation? Was that mainly or was it developments? And difficult, difficult question to answer because first, from a technical point of view, I'm not the most qualified and second, my memory's terrible, but yeah. I remember 15 was the most, was a real polished package. I mean, when I arrived at Kawasaki, the bike was at an incredibly high level. Probably the most powerful bike we ever had. Um, 2016 then, um, we brought a new machine. Kawasaki launched the latest edition of the, or the current edition of the ZX-10RR. And um, I had a lot of teething problems that year. It was the most difficult bike to win on. Um, I struggled that season with finding neutral a lot during riding. I had a lot of false neutrals. Um, we experimented a lot with the inertia of the engine, playing, trying to go lighter with that, going heavier. They introduced the it was compulsory for all teams to use a generator, um, which increased the inertia on the bike. For me, that was not too bad. Um, it gave me, I mean, as technical as it sounds, but more inertia means it's heavier, you know, heavier uh, moving mass inside the engine. And when I cracked the throttle, I like it 
to feel what's happening. You know, I don't want an electronic feeling, I want a mechanical feeling. So that everything was going in my way. 2017 then, we had to use um, the first year of using standard pistons and they, they decreased the regulation again. Then new for 2018, they introduced the the, regula the rev limit regulation for all manufacturers, got a given rev range, also concession parts, so there can be no factory specials. You know, the, the bike I use should be available to Lucio Pedercini or Manuel Pacetti to buy for his team, which I really agree with. You know, it didn't make sense for us to have a super duper, I mean, I know the performance of our 2017 bike and, and we had a, a step, but this year we don't have that advantage on even customer teams. So in theory, I think, and also there's a bike cap price as well. Um, so in theory, if you have, I think it's 300,000 euros, you can come and take my bike out of my garage. And that's cool. Yeah. You know, that's super cool. And um, should pretty much mean if you have a, a lot of good staff around you and a good rider, you can compete at the front. Are you um, kind of happy that you've gone this direction? It's, it's the it's the always the question, isn't it? Well, one of the questions uh, that you went the superbike route rather than going off into MotoGP. When there was, you know, you had a couple of rides in 2012 with yeah. Honda and so on. And no, it's tough. It's a real tough one. I think I'll. I don't lose sleep over it, but there's there's part of me that feels um, just inquisitive. You know, what could I do over there on a, on a great bike? And um, I mean, I, I came from a working class family that they could, we couldn't even buy a ride in, in British Supersport. I got so lucky to enter an X Factor style competition to get a ride. You know, I was the finalist and I got selected into 125 GP. And unlike, you can't pick your career path. It's all about opportunities. And I never got a great opportunity there. I mean, as um, super bikes tended to be my way, the most cost-effective way, where the opportunities were, and and although there's been opportunity to go to MotoGP, it's always been in the teams that finish on the back side of the top ten, and I feel that I deserve better. You know, I feel like I deserve my crack at a factory bike, yeah. not a factory so bike. So you wouldn't go. I mean, I had, you had a this this season. I got off. I had a factory approach me and make me a you know, an offer that I had to pick my ears up at, but it wasn't a bike that finishes at the front. Mm -hmm. And Kawasaki are the only manufacturer that don't ride in MotoGP and they do all their R&D in, in superbikes. So I'm proud of that as well. And they, they really appreciate me. And um, it's just kind of how it works. And it's, but there's always a part of me that feels like, what could I do? But, but it doesn't really bother you. Don't. I've got four world championships. Yeah. <laughs> I could walk away yeah. from the sport tomorrow yeah, and yeah, yeah. and happily retire with my kids. Yeah. I feel really fulfilled in, in yeah. inside Superbike, and I got the chance in MotoGP. You know, I got two wild cards with yeah. arguably the best team in the paddock, the most successful team certainly in the last decades, and um, I finished seventh and eighth. You know, I've. I can be extremely proud of that. I mean, if that happened right now in two thousand and. 18 when it's on everybody's mind, you know, people would be jumping up and down about it. But back in 
2012, MotoGP was like in the doldrums. You know, they were battling with. Yeah, it was it, the 800s, wasn't it? And uh, it was the era thou- of the 800s when. Thousand CCs then, but it was um, the CRT years. Yeah. And open class and soft. It was in a mess. real mess. And they've yeah. come out of it. You know, it's now it's the golden era of MotoGP. Yeah. But um, thankfully, I got the opportunity. So it kind of it's ticked the box in kind of some way. And I got to work with great engineers when I was there, so it was cool. And what about the TT? Obviously, your dad won a TT in 89. Yes, was it? the junior TT. Um, and obviously, you're from Northern Ireland, and everyone goes road racing, and it's all about racing on the roads. Why didn't you go that way? Because obviously, your dad had done it, and presumably a lot of your dad's mates and your mates did it and would do it. Because of, um, firstly, mum and dad were really strict. and. They really discouraged it. I mean, I think, I think they both took. I'm not sure, but it's in my brain. They, they told me to wipe their hands off me. You know, the fear of God was in me. I couldn't be a road racer. But my dad would jokingly say, after a few beers, even now, listen, there's no better feeling than yeah. a TT race. You know, you think you're on a high, but so I kind of get it. And it's really sad, actually, in, in Ireland for young kids now. Road racing is so accessible. There's so many businessmen that, well, if you express you want to race motorbikes, he's not going to pay, fund you with money or bikes to go and race in the British Moto3 Championship, but he'll buy you like three bikes to go and do the Northwest 200. So I just got the opportunity in the British 125 class and, and ran with it. So, and I feel like it's two completely different sports. There's yeah. very, very few that can mix it. You know, Ian Hutchinson, John McGuinness, more recently now, Peter Hickman are the are the only guys that can mix it. But you've got your out and out road racers like your Michael Dunlop, who can't transfer too much to the circuit. Then you've got incredible short circuit racers that can't transfer to road racing. It's two different sports. Yeah. Where where do you watch normally? Because you lived there for a while, didn't you? Where, so where yeah. do you where's your, where's I your love, favorite um, places to watch on? Harold's Wall at Gorse Lee. It's um, yeah, the last the fast, fast ride before Balacrain. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, pretty scary. Big balls corner, yeah. really good. Also, Bray Hill's quite good. Yeah. I mean, I, I do, uh, on Monday, I always love going out on my bicycle on Monday. Yeah. And we do two laps of um, super sport at um, Balacrain. And we ride up to Harold's Wall and do two laps. Then we go out into the countryside um, after Glen Helen to watch two laps of the Superstock bike and back to Belig Bridge just yeah. after Ballacrane and ride home, you know, via Foxdale and have a pint at the Baltic. It's a great day out. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I love it. I mean, yeah. um, that, but that's that's the best way to do the TT, isn't it? Yeah. You, you need a trial bike, trials bike, or a dirt bike, and or a, or a mountain bike, don't that's you? That's it. You know, because then you can get all the places that most people can't. You know. I mean, we did a a great. Um, feature with a few riders. I mean, Cal, me, John McGuinness, David Knight and a journalist, we headed up the, the mountain during practice week on motocross bikes. And um, we looked at, I mean, we could see, in fact, Nider has the, he has a bet. I think it was only back in Joey's era, during 250 practice, Nider brags that he got from um, Ginger Hall to the mountain mile on the, the same lap as, as Joey, There's, that would be scary. You know, being in the back of Nider's enduro bike when he's yeah. doing that, for sure the gates would be open in certain places, but um, yeah, it's cool to see the Isle of Man with the enduro bike. And you take your team over there, 
Was it this year? Two thousand and fifteen, they came. Um, but yeah, generally they, they come over. They love it. You know, it's because uh, it's a holiday. I mean, racing for us. You know, sometimes I visit MotoGP, for example, at British Superbikes or World Motocross, and you see that how stressful an atmosphere it is. But then, when you're working, when I'm working in World Superbikes, it's the same. Where Isla Man TT. I'm like a tourist, you know. I'm a fan, mm, and you yeah. go. But then like you, you say it's a different sport. Isn't but it? then you like, go to yeah. the paddock and you watch the atmosphere before the race. It's eerie, you know. It's it's exciting, and um, it's but it's because I'm not racing. I don't feel the stress. I think I read somewhere that you said you can see the fear in people's face on the start finish line, and not so much the fear. Just the it's the it's a weird atmosphere, you know. Watching the start of that race. And it's exciting, but it's it's eerie, you know. And more so, not the riders, but more so watching mechanics or or partners of riders or wives. It's um, because it's the it's the ultimate test, you know, man and machine. And it's yeah, I mean, that's probably the toughest job in racing is being a mechanic at the TT because. You know, you cannot make a mistake. Or, um, you don't want to make a mistake anywhere if you're a mechanic. But yeah, or a, or a wife or a partner. You know, yeah. I, I, I'll never forget. You know, I'm, I'm close with a lot of the TT riders, but none more so than Keith Amore. And when he, when he raced, I'd regularly be out with a pit board. You know, at signpost in the last laps of races, and I remember them being a red flag. And when there's a red flag at a TT, everyone, it's like I'm getting shiver, like. The hairs in my neck are up now thinking about it because you're, because generally, generally not great news if there's a red flag out. So, um, and I think everybody feels that. And you kind of grew up in that paddock almost. Yeah, my first um, my first holiday was to the Northwest 200 <laughs> when I was a few months old with mum and dad. But um, and there's um, a photo in the book on the TT grandstand, probably watching dad. Burn laps and it was two fifty. Was it like as a kid in that sort of paddock? Because you're kind of among heroes. And I can remember. I can I can remember being on the electric railway up to Schneefell, doing a trip. Probably dad told mum to take me out of the paddock, and I can remember sort of buttoning into my dad's mechanics, asking to polish stuff and getting in the way. You know, I was three, four years old, and it was cool. I mean, I could see my dad was very competitive, especially at. Um, national level back home, he was you know a winner with his um, in the short circuit and road racing with guys like um, you know Alan Irwin, um, Joey, Joey yeah. Richard Britton, Chris Richardson, so many yeah. so many guys. So I could see the difference winning made to him, and that was you know that's when I got bitten by the right. competitive gene. Yeah. And then, but you went to motocross rather than. Yeah, and as recently as actually two weekends ago, coming back from Portugal, my dad had a few, and he was telling my good mate Gav from the Isle of Man, he said, listen, the reason I quit was because I was having more fun watching me race. So he was, I think it was 94, I just started riding motocross, and he enjoyed watching me ride more than he was, so that was pretty cool to hear. Pity it took him 20-odd years to tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and who, so growing up in the 90s, who were your heroes racing-wise? Swans. Yeah. You know, Swans and uh, Jeremy McGrath from Motocross. Right. But I remember, you know, 93, 94, you know, Pepsi and Lucky Strike Suzuki's years and 
remember Swance was the guy always with inferior machinery to Doon's, mm. you know, factory Hondas and you know, breaking his wrist and how the mechanics would mold foam onto his grip to let him ride with his broken wrist and collarbones. And I remember granddad was, um, you know, Joe Miller's best friend and they would travel races together and he brought me a book home. They did it, he did a picture book and um, Swant did a picture book in 94 or 93, his championship year and he signed it to Jonathan, best wishes, as, as nice as that or as general as that, I hung on to it. You know, it was my favourite book ever. You got a set of his leathers now or something, haven't you? No, a helmet. We or did a helmet, helmet swap. Right, okay. so, yeah. We were both, um, I mean, it's a funny story. We, the first time I met him, he'll never remember, but I met him as a super fan. I just started racing. He was in, um, you know, a, one of the corporate hospitalities at a GP watching a session. You know, might, might have been the 125 class at the times, and I went up to him and tapped him and says, I'm your biggest fan. You know, just, and he just like looked and nodded and looked back at the screen and I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, give me a bit more than that. And um, you know, my management company in the US look after, looked after a lot of his affairs. And when Spees came to Superbike, he came to Imola and we went out for dinner on Sunday night and he was like the life and soul of the table. And I reminded him of that time and he's a, he's a legend. You know, he's one of the guys that texts me after every single race. And um, he was my hero, so how cool is that? I remember we were both picking our chins off the floor when our teammates crashed out of the ADAR in 2013 or 14. And he came down to my box with a helmet and, and we did a helmet swap. And um, yeah, he's a super cool guy. They kind of got, in a weird way, got you bullied at school though, because of your pencil case. My pencil case, yeah. Well, you know, growing up um, in Northern Ireland, I mean, right now it's 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 great, but when I when I grew up, it seemed I came from the countryside, and um, I went to an integrated school, and religion was something that people hang on to. For some, it's more important than others, and you know, having a you know red, white, and blue Pepsi pencil case, you know, antagonised some of my classmates, and it was a reason to you know to be bullied, and and not just that, you know, a clash of personalities and. You know, I didn't have the best time at school. You know, I enjoyed it for what it was. But I think coming from the countryside with no friends and also no friends from my primary school, um, coupled with the fact I didn't do you know, weekend sport, I didn't play for rugby after third year when they played on Saturdays, I went motocross and I didn't really fit in that well at school. I got good grades and you know I got on well with my teachers, but um, unfortunately I'm, I didn't have the best friends. You, um, I mean, you, 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 as you say, you come to MotoGP races. Sometimes you, you race there a couple of times, and I think you, you know Marquez. I guess more from probably sharing test days or whatever. Um, and you must know Ross. What's your thoughts about who are your kind of favourite riders from kind of riding point of view and in MotoGP from riding point of view? Easier than asking your favourite riders in World Superbike, I suppose. That's from true. riding point of view and from personality point of view. It's difficult to say because both. Valentino and Mark are very different, but they're very similar. Yeah. And, um, you know, Mark's, you know, I'm a lot closer with Mark. I mean, um, he's, I met him, you know, Mark grew up inside a junior program that my team manager, Game ran back in yeah. Spain, looking after young talent. So he's a great relationship with my team. And, um, you know, the last few seasons, 
he's also been world champion. I've met him at FIM Awards and he's a super cool guy. And unfortunately for Mark, he's grown up in sort of Rossi mania where, you know, Valentino has, you know, you go down the street here in London and you say, talk about motorbikes. People mention Barry Sheen or Valentino Rossi. The, the Joe blogs will not know anybody else. And Mark's coming into that sort of era and he's doing you know, a better job. Without doubt, Mark's skills now are, you know, he is the best rider in the world, bar none. And um, un unfortunately for him, he, he gets a lot of flack. Um, and Valentino now, I struggle to understand how he still has drive to keep going. You know, he's, he is the greatest of all time, but he's, he's still there. He's the biggest pain in the ass for Mark at times. And that's, um, you know, his season in 2017 was incredible. But the best way to describe that was, and, and Mark, was I went to, you know, every year I go do a motocross camp in Spain. And Mark had arranged that we go and ride in, um, in Ponce on his um, assistant's track, on um, Jose's track. And all my friends are like Rossi mad, you know, they're all from the Isle of Man. We put a truckload of bikes together and we go. So we went there and it was all a bit awkward. And afterwards I was out finishing my last moto and Mark had to jump off for a, a photo shoot. And he came around each and every one of my Manx friends that were all sat down talking about the day and, and sat down with them and asked them each, you know, how, what do you think of the track and do you like it? Did you have fun? And they went all from being Valentino fans to Love, absolutely loving Mark Marquez and um, it's a strange one you know but um, I love them both I mean it's I think it's really hard to to, to have a favourite. Mark's kind of carried a lot of his mo motocross style up through the ranks whereas you kind of had to train yourself to almost forget on a short circuit do you think you'd be able to do that mot MotoGP as well? If you were to get a MotoGP bike, you'd be able to ride it. Not in the same way as Marquez, but in a similar way in a, a little bit No, because I, I really feel like there's different ways to get the best out of different bikes, especially with the parameters now you can change on a bike from a chassis point of view. You look at riders like um, me and Tom Sykes riding the same bike, completely different setups. What If I had to ride Tom's, race Tom's bike in a race, there'd be no way I could be fast. Yeah. It's the same in... Um, in MotoGP, now you see the the intergarage bickering between riders about direction of development. It's because each rider has their own specific style, and not that one's right or one's wrong. But I think you know Marquez's style is Marquez's style. It's be world famous forever. I mean, he's he's taken racing to the next level. Yeah, he's pretty uh, special to watch. And uh, going back to Rossi, um, do you see yourself still? I mean, he's in his 24th season now. How many World Championship seasons have you done? 2009, so, so 10, so ten, ten seasons. Do you see yourself doing another 14 years? No more way. Superbike? No, the, the, the guy's an absolute legend. I mean, you can't call too many people a legend and Valentino's a legend. And like I just said earlier, I don't understand why he keeps doing it. No, it but it's, it's like, you know, it's, you know, I often joke to great friend of mine, German McWilliams, why are you still racing? Yeah. And, and it's because he loves it. You know, he absolutely loves racing. And it's the same with Valentino. So, um, 
few years ago I seen retirement, I started to think about what's happening next and when will that be? And then honestly the last two seasons I've I can't see retirement. I don't know when it's so gonna you, be. You might be still doing it. I hope not. <laughs> if I'm if I'm still racing at thirty nine, I know Tarsh yeah. won't be too happy. <laughs> Do you think if you get get five, you'd have that thought again? In the that's five, is that Yeah, because it's easy when you're winning, you know, mentally yeah. to keep going. Because I mean, motivation's high, and when it when it when it comes as naturally as it did this season, with the great bike and team, why not? Yeah. I mean, I've I've had great injuries, but I'm in really good shape. I mean, I've looked after my injuries, and I feel like uh, physically I'm really good. Mentally, I feel good, and I feel like I can still improve as well. So. Yeah, when things are going well, it kind of keeps on rolling, doesn't it? I guess. But with Rossi, it's just, I mean, yeah, how, how he maintains that drive even now when, you know, maybe he's lost a bit of drive in the last few races because he just, you know, he's just banging, he's banging his head against a brick wall, isn't he? Um, but yeah, to, to still want to go on when he's just finishing seventh and eighth, I mean, you know, that, that, that's not a good, you know, when you have two wins or one winner, you go home. Yeah, it's desperate for the next race, don't you? When you finish seventh, you're like, oh. Yeah, it's it's completely nuts, and more so, you know, he's got so much going now with the VR46 merchandise branding, you know, the VR46 Racing Academy, and he's gone out there and putting you know, his ass in the line, dirt tracking with these kids that are so hungry, you know, and ruthless, and smashing them. You know, he's he's an example. He's. I, I thought when he went. After I thought he might well retire after those two horrible years, you know, because he was already a legend and arguably the best ever then, wasn't he? You know, and and then when he started his Moto Two, Moto Three team, he thought, well, that's got to be it, because you can't be a rider. I mean, I know he doesn't run them day to day, but nonetheless, it's it's another thing to that takes up. He just seems to have this amazing brain that can just do all these things. Sure. You know, you can carry on. Yeah, he might not be running those teams, but he's helping the riders and everything, and he's got all these VR. For, you know, I mean, so he's got so many different things going on. I just yeah, he's got a very broad kind of brain that just seems to be able to do lots of different things and yeah. do them really well. You know? his, his mental his mental capability is really strong, and maybe that I mean certainly I can draw parallels with having a family, because when you're racing, it's a very stressful environment that you need to be you need to really focus on and do it right. But if you're obsessive about it, you can generate so many problems. You know, having a family for me was the the perfect distraction of not over obsessing about things that I shouldn't and maybe with Valentino all these other projects he has mm -hmm. going on is the perfect distraction that keeps him motivated that when he gets to the track but um, yeah it's a uh, cool story he has yeah I mean and I think as well with you know in the past that could never happen you know his mental capability is strong but you know in recent modern day motorcycling the safety equipment, the electronics involved now is really prolonging riders' careers. So if physically you're in a yeah. great shape, why not continue? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got about five minutes left, I think. But you mentioned then just that Rossi's got this a great story. Uh, and I read l last year when you were talking about MotoGP that it would be a fairy tale to go into Moto MotoGP almost. But if you step back and consider your career as a whole, when you've got coming back from an injury, you were told you, never, you would never race again, winning so many titles and so many races, becoming the most successful world superbike rider of all time. 
at the same time having a family and being happy in motorsport, you must kind of think that's a fairy tale already. Yeah. Right now, if you full stopped it, I mean, it's incredible, like living the dream. That's why it's really hard to, to talk about it. Uh, you know, I feel really blessed and lucky. And um, it's, I mean, in superbike terms, I can be compared to Carl Fogarty. But Carl Fogarty, growing up for me, was, you know, a hero, legend. So to think that I could have that impact on young kids or young kids starting out as a role model or, you know, aspire to, that, that's super cool for me to think about. And then earlier the year, this year, you also won the Torrance Trophy which literally puts your name up alongside the greatest, the greatest names of Britain's produced on two wheels, really, isn't it? So yeah, it's another it, notch on the... Very yeah, notch. of course, and it's a, it's a great award to win because it doesn't get handed out willy-nilly. You know, it's an award that gets handed out for special achievements, and you know, it's nice to come to the Royal Automobile Club and, and receive it as well, such an impressive building. I didn't realise the significance of the award when I, when I got awarded it, and it's... Um, Certainly cool. It's kind of a bit, uh, bit better than the, than the usual biker's cap, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. You know, it's uh, the surroundings are unbelievable, right in the centre of London as well. Yeah, you can't escape the uh, autograph hunters though. Cause no, I mean there was a guy outside waiting for quite some time, which was is nice. It's super nice. I mean, um, sometimes. You know, it's not about fame or whatever, but and there's times where you know you can be overwhelmed by it. You know, especially in Italy, where fans are, you know, they're on you, and you sometimes feel like an animal in the zoo. But especially the the British fans are really respectful and and um, generally really nice. I mean, I've, with social media nowadays, you get fans have amazing access to anybody, and you see what they want to say. And I have honestly for. I have 99% love, you know, 1%. There'll always be you know, that one hate comment on there that that sometimes you focus on too much, but I've been um, really lucky to have amazing support. What, what do you think you'll do when you stop? Will you be one of those riders that just disappears <laughs> for a long time I've, and just... I have no idea. Nice, like, or will you, will you be back in the paddock running a team the next year? Or on TV? Or oh, do you know, I have no idea. And that's what I spent time yeah. thinking about a few years ago. And um, I think it's important to take a little bit of time out just to understand what's next. It'd be so easy to jump into some kind of um, you know, punditry or yeah. journalism or team assistant role or holding a academy week up, or holding a week up for somebody. <laughs> you know, I've yeah, but um, I also long for having a real normal life. You know, going on a normal family holiday with my two kids that doesn't involve going, you know, to Misano a week before or after a race or mm. Portugal before or after a race. And that's really important to me. So I have no idea. But I want to take some time out and figure out what's next. You still have to kind of, you know, watch what you eat, weigh yourself every day. You're still in a kind of intense world of fitness that you have to not adhere that, to. I'm not obsessive about diet or, or training. I mean I'm educated enough now to know what I should and shouldn't be doing or putting into my body uh, and about weight I mean our 
performance manager in the team. I mean, he has the skills before and after every session, you know, just to keep track of fluids and and um, being hy hydrated I am. So I'm always aware of, you know, if I'm weighing in a bit heavy or not. And um, I mean, the whole program at Kawasaki, you know, from a medical point of view, is so high. They invest a lot in me as an athlete. I mean, being fitness tested during the season to, you know, blood tests, monitoring my health and really trying to understand what I'm doing away from the track as well. And, and that all really helps. Um, quickly before we go, Matt, I know you want to talk, you want to, talk to us about November's tests. All right. Well, yeah, we, um, obviously the last few years, at the end of November, there's been a joint MotoGP um, and World well, Superbike test, which you kind of, I mean, I know you say you don't take it that seriously, but it seems to me that you kind of, you you do like to kind of I don't know, prove a point or whatever. Definitely not prove the point. 100% not. I mean, we're there doing our thing. Well, not prove a point, but you, you, it must mean something to you to go. You must. It must be a nice feeling, let's say, to go faster than the guys. On oh, hell yeah. yeah. It would not be. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I don't think of that before it happens because I'm in the middle of a testing program. And uh, I mean, not so much last year. I mean, Davizioso went. I think it was two tenths faster last year. Mm. But 2016, I had full bragging rights, mm. you know, as the fastest rider at the Jerez yeah, test, yeah, yeah. you know, combined with GP. And um, that was cool. I mean, it certainly got a lot of people talking. I mean, there's no better comparison. Same day, same track, same temperatures, you know, GP bike and, and super bike. And yes, we had a, a soft tire on that that give us a lap time, but it was the same conditions. And I mean, my bike starts off in that Kawasaki dealer shop down the road and, and yeah. the team, we use parts that everyone can buy this against, you know, Formula One-esque prototypes, which was it's super cool. You know, it's super cool to see at the end of the classification, you know, when it goes five o'clock and the track goes red, it's like my name's on the top. <laughs> and look at the guys behind it, it was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, and yeah. Um, but it's not something I kind of motivated myself to do. I understand it won't be happening this year. Definitely not. I think our friends over in the Grand Prix paddock, they don't want to. They don't want to play with us anymore. So, <laughs> I mean, I understand. <laughs> so the, the the separate day. So we've right? got Monday, so got, Tuesday at yeah. Hareth this year, and GP will start on Wednesday. Right. Don't even know if I'll be allowed to go in and take photos. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be looking at the following times though. Well, not really. They'll probably spend them three days complaining how much Pirelli rubber's on the track. <laughs> right, we better wrap this up because uh, you have uh, your evening with here and there, Royal Football Club, which has been time to kind of, it couldn't be timed any better, could it? Sort of, no, not only here to it's mad. talk about your book, but you can also celebrate a fourth win. Yeah, and I've right. had a pretty dry celebration, so I might have a nice glass of wine tonight. Or two. Yeah. Or, or four. Or, yeah, well, enjoy. <laughs>